Words can open up worlds. They can illuminate an opaque object with explanation and purpose, giving it the depth of history and the breadth of social connection. They can animate ideas with exemplars and context. They can augment flat surfaces with layers of information, allowing us to look beneath and beyond what we see. They allow us to read and convey meaning. That a picture is worth a thousand words is a cliche that we're all too familiar with. But really? Don't words sometimes give us that extra push to understand the picture or to position it within a visual world to give it a history? Pictures and words do work independent of each other, but they can also work together, the image and sentence meshing and synchronizing in productive ways. Welcome to another episode of Reading for Our Times, the podcast where we celebrate books and the pleasures of good writing. This week we're going to listen to something a little different, and I'll tell you why in a moment. Almost everything I know about the Dutch Golden Age can be traced back to a single book. Oh wait, a single movie, The Girl with a Pearl Earring, a fictional account that imagines the 17th century Dutch artist Johannes Vermeer creating that famous painting. If you haven't seen the 2003 film starring Scarlett Johansson or read the the historical novel by Tracy Chevalier, I'd highly recommend both. So an art history student, Shreya Subramaniam, approached me with an idea to do an episode focusing on the Dutch Golden Age, I was intrigued and excited by the opportunity to learn more, even though it moved away a little bit from the usual format of this podcast. Shreya drew in three of her friends and together they've created a bit of sound magic that gives us a little slice of history and an experience that is quite different from either the book or the film. So who are these artists that made up the Dutch Golden Age, that period of immense creative productivity spanning the 17th century, those ordinary people, the burghers, the farmers, the sailors, the bakers, each of whom harbored the soul of an artist? I let Krishna Trivedi, a student of philosophy at the University of Hyderabad, lead us into the episode and tell us what they have in store for us. I am Krishna from the Department of Philosophy. Shreya, Anusha and Shweta are from Art History and Visual Studies in Fine Arts Department at the University of Hyderabad. We came together through studying an art history course. Art historians have a unique place in a world of people who have dedicated their lives to searching for the past. While an archaeologist might delve through graves, Searching for history written in bone and brick, the historian searches for a more deliberate sort of remains, history left behind in words. The art historian, however, looks into old paint and aged varnish and sees for themselves the inner machinations of a person's mind, organized by its society, shaped by its culture and formed by its personality. Art is a depository of culture, an archive for history, and perhaps more importantly, an image, reflection of who we are, a mirroring of something greater than flesh. 
As a group of students, we live amongst artists, attempt to untangle the most complex of their thoughts. History is reborn in color and form. And in this episode of the podcast, we wanted to use that to our advantage and recreate a period in history called the Dutch Golden Age. Spanning a century from its starting point in the 1500s, the Dutch Golden Age is the title we give a period of miraculous progress in art, in trade, in science, in the buying and selling of tulip bulbs. It was also transient and complicated, words we can use to describe the present conditions of our lives. E.H. Gombrich, the art historian, has to say of the period in the 20th chapter of the book, The Story of Art. If I have called this chapter the mirror of nature, I did not only want to say that Dutch art had learned to reproduce nature as faithfully as a mirror. Neither art nor nature are ever as smooth and cold as glass. Nature reflected in art always reflects the artist's own mind, his predilections, his enjoyments and therefore his moods. The Dutch artists gave us an image of their lives on canvas. And the following readings are from original writing by Shreya, hoping to somehow recreate that lost era, almost like a story encased in a book. We hope you will enjoy this. There is a panel of sunlight in the room, coloured a dull, faint yellow that fills the heart of the draught. The room reeks of the artist's craft, a smell of linseed oil accidentally spilt across wood. Its owner, a dark-haired young woman, paces around the room, drawing a straight line with her feet. Below, beyond the glass panes fixed in the window, the laundress is calling for soiled petticoats her voice rising through the air like a siren. Two women stand on a patch of cobbled street on the winding roads of Harlem and argue over a basket of fish. Judith Leicester can see them from the window, see the sunlight gleaming off the back of the fish, glistening in its scales. She sighs and her breath mists over the glass. The painting, waiting on the easel, has to contain her immortality. Generals write history in blood. Spectators write it in ink. But Judith is a different sort, seeking to turn crushed pigment into eternal life. A strange, peculiar type of alchemy. The painting... Waiting with its faint lines and empty colour is like a lifeless body waiting for form. She is like God, pulling shape and structure from void. She sighs again. It doesn't matter if she thinks it or says it out loud to a group of merchant traders in a dark bar after too many glasses of aquavit. The Harlem Guild must agree. The Harlem Guild is what will make her an artist, not an amateur playing with paint and pigment. 
her best clothing weights spread across a chair. A self-portrait, she thought. One night after dinner when it's cold would be the best choice. She would show herself in her best dress. But that would not be all. It would be a portrait of her skill and her ability. Her ability to paint the pleats of a skirt. The delicate passage of light through a lace collar. Through fine diaphanous cloth. It will be a fleeting moment. Almost like the viewer interrupted her while she was working on a painting. All of her tools surrounding her. And she had just turned. A smile of greeting erupting on her face. It was a moment in time, a memory, a dream. A knot of anxiety tightens in her chest. Did the great men of art suffer as she did now, before their masterpiece? A woman was a prisoner, bound in her corset, with her borrowed opinions and inherited beliefs. Judith stands in front of her self-portrait. It isn't a still life of a china vase of tulips, the colour of their petals bleeding into their stalk. This is proof, evidence, that she is not just a woman, a daughter, a wife, but she is an artist. Judith purses her lips, sits down in her chair and begins to mix the pigments that will help her form her masterpiece. Hours pass and the day dies in the arms of the night. Judith doesn't know as she stands in an embrace of shadows and stares at the unfinished painting with an aid of an oil lamp that she will soon be one of the only female artists accepted into the Harlem Guild of St. Luke or that the artist Franz Halls will take her apprentice from her one day or even that forgers would use their expert skill to loop her name into an F.H. and Franz Halls will take her immortality too. She doesn't know that one day her name would be unearthed again centuries later. Judith Leicester doesn't know the life that waits for her or the death that stalks her. Every tomorrow remains a secret. For now, she does what she can. She paints. Everybody makes mistakes. Mistakes are what define us, are they not? They start out as ideas. Little pesky balls of colour bouncing off the sides of the mind. At first, they seem ridiculous, stupid even, and then we laugh at them, tell the listener within us not to be a fool. How can we leave a respectful artist's guild to join another's when the law punishes it? And then the thought rolls around itself, like a piece of marzipan on the tongue, and again and again, until the idea grows too loud to be subdued. It then becomes a decision after a tiresome afternoon which Madame Leicester spends shouting at her apprentice to the backdrop of a steady downpour. 
then said apprentice takes a wild sudden decision and storms out the studio and heads towards halls where he is welcomed through the door and politely asked not to get water on anything important that was how the apprentice found himself in his present predicament mixing pigments with binders in franz hall's studio while his old mistress lester accuses halls of stealing him it is personal politics that define this argument between two artists he is a good apprentice yes but he is a young man young enough to fall into the lap of a daydream while the ochre imported from italy requires mixing he is always thinking of the sea of his old danish home of wanting to one day become famous for paintings of the kattegat where the waves were neither white nor blue but somehow grey it is the apprentice's job to mix pigments to organize the colors on the palette to prime the linen canvas or the wooden panels all complete and prepared for the artist to paint when they wanted to to our young apprentice the world is a place of color he sees it in the tiles of the rooftops in the center of a cloud of smoke and the glistening of a silk skirt he sees it in the leaves of a tree in the tent of the sky and the rainbow that emerges from light after a rainstorm sometimes while mixing pigments he thinks of the ruddy color of a child's cheeks while it runs away from its mother and completely makes a mess of a brick red vermilion he is then reminded in a memorable fashion that he cost franz hals a decent amount of money to keep and isn't he grateful the filthy mongrel that doesn't end well but one day when he has his own atelier with rich drapes and beautiful models paid by all of those kattegat paintings sold in his youth he will remember his masters with a smile he might even deign to give them some credit for his success you just watch when he is free free from the duties of an apprentice free from being bossed around by the superior journeyman who had the honor of actually putting paint to canvas he would roam around harlem with his friend yan and duck into bars and pubs and watch as men auctioned off tulip bulbs for the prices of whole houses it is some kind of life it is a world full of artists of traders of brilliant people roaming around the winding streets of harlem seeking fortune amusement immortality he feels small in this world and alone standing by the canals connected to the span river at night when darkness claims the world and he is left alone with nothing but the heat of a flame pulsing through an oil lamp's thin glass he thinks of running back home going back to the small danish town with his father's field crop and his mother's grave but he is an artist and beyond the skill and the ability and the filmy layer of talent lies a core of unshakable perseverance that is what makes an artist a core of unshakable perseverance 
that is what is required to have a garden like his that and an unconditional love for the flower it isn't only a flower the botanist reasons tulips are much more the proof of god's existence the essence that fills the coffers of the dutch land with gold and silver the hope that the dutch people fostered in their hearts when they reclaimed their glorious land from their enemies the botanist cradles a tulip bulb in his hands it is worth more than one of the gabled houses that line the canals of harlem it is worth more than the finest dress made of oriental silk that lies folded in the aristocratic woman's wardrobe but to the botanist it is somehow worth more than his own life between the tulips in his garden the botanist has buried years of his life the flower raises its head hanging heavy on its stem separated by a small path of stones are two patches of the garden where his youth lies in the soil and his great pride white petals of tulips that somehow bleed red like magic like miracle the botanist is born too early to know that it is a disease a virus that festers in the heart of the tulip and turns the petals into different colors to him the tulip breaking into color is a blessing that flutters down from heaven and lands gently in his garden men want these flowers increasingly so they want to auction them in the taverns voices rising in anxious heat the price steadily increasing they want the artists to buy them who will place them in blue white vases or in a lady's small hand and paint them can any of them recreate the beauty of nature's creation he thinks not all the same they want them for the dining tables at the feasts organized by the rich wife for her husband's friends from dutch east india company the voc it is a craze a feverish days and it won't last the botanist grows the flowers in his garden for himself he will not sell a single one will not part with them no sir no amount of badgering will change his mind well until it is time for his daughter to be married circumstances circumstances have the strength to crack the strongest man's will so be it everybody else is making a profit of the flowers a fact which makes the botanist's wife very unhappy these false gardeners struggle for years searching for a better hybrid a more beautiful flower rumor spreads sprouting like weeds in one's garden the black tulip has been discovered another rumor follows quickly racing through the morning air that the black tulip garden has been subject to an arson attempt the night before there was a small gathering in the corner of the local wine establishment where the shadows and the drunkards convene and a man was heard suggesting it to a friend 
what a gnarled hideous thought the botanist snarls at breakfast his daughter nods in agreement eager to please born in a mind as dull as a brick he declares thumping his fist on the table and she laughs there are some things more beautiful than tulips he thinks there are some things more beautiful than well everything What can be more beautiful than a life on the sea? The sea is the most beautiful, stretching on beyond that line of horizon no sailor could grasp. It is every sailor's life's goal, however, to find the ends of the earth, the seas, to conquer that line of horizon, to go down in history as the man who discovered the new world. They dream of it. Unfortunately, however, more often than not, the sailor's youth dries up in the Batavian heat, where he is head of a warehouse of spices, and then he is asked to retire to a little room with a wooden desk at the VOC, and the ends of the world remain sadly undiscovered. The sailor brushes the idea away. This life is glorious. at the destination of every voyage is a land of opportunity of possibility dye cloth gems pepper and cinnamon bark spices from the islands where the sun lies in a state of repose every day of the year the sailor watches the light resting on the face of the tide sometimes he loses himself in the labyrinth of his mind drowns in philosophy at the bottom of a wine glass the few friends he has find him strange for this for occasionally asking while they hauled cartons of goods into ships if this was the purpose of life if there was any difference between him and a sealanese man except for the language that rests on the tongue he quickly brushes these thoughts away wondering why they follow him like a moth to the light we hope that this episode entertained you and allowed you to see a glimpse of a period lost to history restored to its previous state in your mind's eye Words are wonderful things, magical things, ripped from the constant passage of time, allowing us to live entire lives in the span of minutes, experience emotions unfamiliar to the heart, and traverse time and space with our feet planted firmly on the ground. We thank you. Yes, words can transport us. And I've been looking at those paintings on my laptop screen. Wind-swept seascapes, sumptuous fruit baskets on well-laid tables, Dutch nobility cavorting in their gardens, 
and scenes of everyday life. And now I think about the artists who made them. Who were they? What went on in their minds? Maybe we've had a tiny glimpse of this. Fiction, yes, but what better tool than fiction to enter the unknown? Thanks to the readers, all students from the University of Hyderabad, Anusha Vikram from Art History, Krishna Trivedi from the Department of Philosophy who also read the introduction, Shweta Priya Dehuri from Art History, and Shreya Subramaniam from Art History who conceptualized and scripted the segments. And the music that bookends the show, as always, is from the track To Be Inspired by Andrew, made available on eon.com. If you've enjoyed this show, do tell others who share your love of books and reading. You can subscribe to the show on Anchor, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Overcast, Pocket Cast, or sign up on our SoundCloud RSS feed. If you have feedback or suggestions or would like to contribute a reading, do write to me or leave a comment for us. You can reach me at usha.raman at gmail.com. I'm Usha Raman. Thank you for listening. Stay safe, stay healthy, and keep reading.